Well, I want to say a couple of things. One is, is that uh, as we continue our series in the Psalms, uh, I want you to think about, if you don't have something already to read, to begin to read the Psalms. If you want to grow in worship, that's a great way to do it. Now, I know the women's Bible study has a lot of you reading into the Psalms and, and, and uh, taking time to, to understand them, and I love that. I want to encourage all of us to take time to read the Psalms. It's God's worship manual. It's 10% of the Old Testament. It's, it's like a third as much as the New Testament, 150 chapters, over 2,400 verses. And I want to encourage you, just start in there and begin to think God's thoughts after him. Begin to use some of that language in your prayers. Pray some of those Psalms back to him. And you'll find that you will grow in your heart of worship because that's our series now is a heart of worship. I also want to encourage you, if you have some questions uh, uh, as a result of the sermon, we're going to start something uh, uh, today, this week, uh, and that is to have a little Q&A afterwards, and we're going to use some of the questions that you have. And so if you have some questions, you can either put them in the comment section, or if you'd rather be anonymous, uh, I would encourage you to go to that description where uh, you were shown where you can do your giving. Well, there's also a, a link there where you can ask your questions. And you can either put your name there or not. You can be anonymous in your question if you would like to be. And so we would love to hear what questions you are having as a result of the message itself. And so I want to encourage you to do that. Well, I want you to turn with me to John chapter 4. John chapter 4, and we're continuing our series uh, called A Heart of Worship. Uh, and so uh, as we began to look at these things, I want to just review by way of review to think about what we've been looking at in terms of being a follower of Jesus, a Jesus follower. If you'll notice that being a Jesus follower, we believe three things. We believe that we need to abide in Christ. John 15 is a great passage for that, that we abide in him and apart from him, we will, we will, bear, uh, we will not bear any fruit, but with him, we will bear much fruit. And then the idea of belonging, that we belong to one another, that we belong to the body of Christ, that we belong to Jesus. And so we are part of the bride of Christ and we belong to the bride of Christ. And then this idea of impact, that we want to impact the world around us. And what that means is, is that impacts our focus, what we focus on. And so we have a God focus, a community focus with other believers, and then a people focus in terms of reaching beyond ourselves. And as we do that, we will accomplish the abiding and belonging and impacting, and we will become more and more a follower of Jesus. How this impacts us in the area of our worship is that it uh, um, impacts a couple of those areas, the idea of abiding, the idea of belonging, that worship is something that we do as we uh, look to God and as we worship him, but it's also something that causes us to relate to one another. We're not just worshiping alone. We're worshiping together as a body of Christ and as a whole globe uh, of believers all over the world that are worshiping God on this day and, and in different time zones. And so there's this continual worship that's going on of believers in Jesus that we are a part of this great uh, uh, group of people worshiping God and I love that and so as we take this time to think about our worship we need to think about 
the passage in front of us. The passage in front of us, John chapter 4, Jesus is going through the area of Samaria. And this area of Samaria is really important uh, to, uh, to, the, uh, uh, to, to, to the concept of worship. Because Jesus speaks very powerfully in verse 23. He says, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Now, worshiping in spirit and truth, we need to think about what that means. You know, this last week I was thinking about that because there was a statement made by one of our country's leaders, uh, and, the, and the statement was this, that as the things, uh, as the virus begins to flatten off, and as we're beginning to see the flattening of the curve, which is a phrase that most of us uh, will probably remember the rest of our lives, here's this flattening of the curve, what they said was, what this... Uh, uh, leader said is he says the number is down because we brought the number down God did not do it faith did not do that destiny did not do that a lot of pain and suffering did that that's how it works it's math and I was as I listened to that I was thinking now wait a minute the guy that's speaking is actually a religious person he's somebody who believes in God so why is he saying such a thing? And in fact, I've had other people uh, that I've heard say this. Why do I thank God? Because I'm doing all the work. And I was thinking, wow, that, that statement really causes us to go back and wonder, what is our view of God? And is it a truth position or is it some other position? Uh, just because I can't see God's hand at work doesn't necessarily mean he's not at work. And I began to think as I was wrestling with this, what is the problem with this statement? And the problem is, is the scope of the vision of the person is too limited. We don't know what God is doing. God is greater than we are. He is greater and he is able to do more than we could ever think or imagine. And I began to think that we're probably more like a child who begins to think of his life that I'm doing all this stuff, I'm accomplishing all these things. And not thinking about the fact that mom and dad are paying for their food and clothing and place to stay and car insurance and car and all these things that are making possible for a person to be able to make that kind of statement. And it made me think about the fact that in our lives, we're very similar to that. In fact, in, in Acts chapter 17, we see the Apostle Paul as he's speaking to the people in the Areopagus in Athens, Greece, and he's, and he's talking about the fact that he says, the God who made this world, so here's a true statement about God, the God who made this world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life, and breath, and everything. And I realize that's what God has given us. He's given us everything that we need. And so for a person to say, God didn't do this, that it wasn't God, that it wasn't faith, ignores this simple basic idea that God gives me breath. God gives me life. God gives me a brain that is able to think about issues. God gave 
us a desire to help other people and not narcissistic or just self-involved, but we want to help others. God has placed that in the hearts of a lot of our first responders and nurses and doctors that they want to help others. God made medical knowledge accessible. He didn't hide it where we couldn't figure it out. He made it accessible. He made viruses predictable that they would do and act in certain ways so that we could predict what they would, would do and that we could stay away six feet and that would make a difference and that we could put a mask on and that would make a difference. And, and we began to, uh, to realize that God has given us everything. And so for us to, to say that we uh, have accomplished all these things is more like Nebuchadnezzar whenever he was standing in his palace and he says, look at this great kingdom that I have accomplished and established. And God says, because you took all the credit, basically you're going to be eating grass for a while. And so we see that we can't do anything without him. And in fact, as if anything, we should realize that in the situation we are, God could take it all away just like that. Our jobs taken away, our finances taken away, our food sources taken away. Uh, I mean, there's so many things that, that God can just say, well, let me show you something. And can take it all away and make us realize how fragile life is and how dependent we are upon him for everything. Life and breath and everything. And so for us to make a statement means that we don't understand that and we don't understand what's true about God. I think about Buddy Ryan when he was the, the coach of the Philadelphia Eagles and, and he uh, had this incredible offense and it was Randall Cunningham and he had these wonderful receivers and, and I mean they had a lot of yards that year uh, in the air. It was a passing game. They didn't have much of a running game but man they had a passing game. And Buddy Ryan made the statement to the newspaper the day before the game. He says, man, even God couldn't stop our offense, so powerful as it is. Well, God allowed a fog to roll in over Soldier Field. They were playing the Chicago Bears, and it rolled in, and nobody could see more than about 10 yards. I watched that game, and it was an incredible game. And here was this, the, you couldn't see anybody, and, and I don't know how they saw receivers. Randall Cunningham had a 400-yard day in passing, so it was an amazing day, but they lost the game 20-12. to 12. And I was thinking how Buddy Ryan was so boastful and so thoughtful, and I thought, how we... Don't understand our God. We don't understand what's true about him. And if I am going to worship God in spirit and in truth, then I've got to humble myself. I've got to come to the point where I don't just jump out there and make these landish statements or don't just live my life like a practical atheist. So many people in our world, and I remember Craig Rochelle wrote this book, and he talks about practical, being a practical atheist, being a believer in Jesus, but just living our lives like it all depends upon us, and that God's not involved in some way. That God's not a factor, and yet he's provided everything that we need for this pandemic. He's provided a food source for us, that we've had continual food. We haven't missed a meal that God provides for us uh, doctors and nurses and he allowed good leaders and good leadership to, to, to ask us to stay home and to, to ask us to do certain things that would cause lives to be saved. God provided for us. And I think that many times we overstep the bounds of human knowledge when we say, oh, well, God doesn't know or God isn't un uh, involved in this when we really don't understand what it is that we're talking about. 
And so I want us to look at the Samaritan woman because the Samaritan woman here is dealing with some issues as well. She's dealing with uh, uh, some huge questions that she has. And so here we go into chapter 4 of John 4. Look at chapter 4, verse 4. It says, And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from the journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Sixth hour means it was about noon because their day started at six o'clock. So one o'clock would have uh, been uh, our seven o'clock and and so forth. And so six o'clock, the sixth hour would have been noon. So he shows up at lunchtime. He shows up at lunchtime and he's, he's talking to this woman. It says, a woman from Samaria, verse seven, came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For the disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. It's amazing that they, they just left Jesus and all of them went to buy food. Nobody stayed with him. The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. I want to stop there for just a second. There were some great animosities between the Jews and the Samaritans. I did a little research on that this week and, and I was profoundly moved by, by uh, this. Uh, I went to this location back in 97 on a trip to Israel. This is uh, the area of, uh, this is the town of Samaria, the Old Testament town. Today is called Nablus. Uh, and and it was, it's the Arab name of Neapolis, new city. And so it became a Roman city. But in the time of, of uh, Moses, God told him, I want you to do this. Of course, he died, and so Joshua was the one that carried it out. He says, I want you to, when you get to Samaria, the town of Samaria, I want you to go between these two hills. One on the right, Mount Ebal, the Mount of Cursing. And the one on the left, Mount Gerizim, the Mount of Blessing. And I want you to have the people divide up. Six tribes on one, six tribes on the other. And the six tribes on Mount Ebal will read the curses of the law. Cursed if you do this and cursed if you do that. And then I want the others on this mountain, Mount Gerizim, to read the blessings of the law. Blessed are you if you do such and such. And so when Joshua came, that's what he did. Well, this town, this area, uh, whenever uh, uh, the... uh, Syrians came. Now it was split. Israel was split into north and south, Israel and Judah, two different countries. And so uh, because of a, a civil break uh, right after the time of Solomon. And so 12, uh, there were, of the 12 tribes, 10 broke away and formed the northern kingdom and two stayed in, and had the southern kingdom. Well now, the interesting thing about that is in 722, the Assyrians came down and they attacked and destroyed the northern kingdom. And they, their strategy was, in order to maintain civil uh, obedience, uh, they would spread people out throughout their whole empire, and they would bring people from other places there, so that way nobody could collect and gather and, and have riots and that kind of thing. And, but one of the things that happened during that time was that uh, uh, they were told, the king of Assyria was told in um, 2 Kings 17, it says, so the king of Assyria was told, 2 Kings 17, 26. The nations that you have carried away and placed in the cities of Samaria do not know the law of the God of the land. So they were thinking God is just a local God. 
not a, an eternal God, not an omnipresent God that he's everywhere. And so they, he, and verse 28 says, so one of the priests whom they had carried away from Samaria came and lived in Bethel and taught them how to fear the Lord. And put them, uh, and, but, but every nation still made gods of its own and put them in the shrines of the high places that the Samaritans had made. And we find from verse 33, so they feared the Lord, but they also served their own gods. So here they come back in 722 and they begin to worship the Lord, but they're also serving their own gods. And so they're involved in a syncretism, a synchristic worship of this God and other gods as well. And so that would have not set well with the Jews of Judea, uh, the, uh, the Jews of Jerusalem. And so they would have struggled with that and would have created some, some tensions. Whenever the uh, Israelites came back because of the decree of Cyrus from Babylon and began to rebuild the temple in Jerusalem, uh, an interesting thing happened is, is about 600 years later, the Samaritans built their own temple and they built it right here on Mount Gerizim. Uh, there's a picture of that, uh, the, the foundation of that, which is, uh, if I can get my thing to work here, there it goes. Uh, here is the foundation of that temple. Now you'll notice in the middle there was a, in the Byzantine area, they built a, a church right on top of that foundation, I guess it saved money so they didn't have to build a foundation again. But uh, this original larger structure is the uh, original uh, foundation of that Samaritan temple. And it was exactly like the temple that was in Jerusalem. So they were building an alternate worship system about 330 AD. So that would have created further tensions. Then we also had in 167 BC, the Greeks moved into the area and they began to, in Jerusalem, try to make the temple to God a temple to Zeus. Well, the Maccabean revolt was a result of that, and they were upset because the Samaritans didn't join them in the revolt. So now further religious animosities, and to make matters worth, 40 years later, John Hyrcanus, a Jew who was of a Hasmonean uh, uh, dynasty, he destroyed the temple on Mount Gerizim. He's the one that destroyed this temple. Well, you can imagine how that would have created even further animosities. In 6 AD, the Samaritans put human bones in the temple area in Jerusalem to defile it, to desecrate it. And so you can imagine how, when, and that Jesus would have been about 10 years old at the time, 9 or 10. And, and so here's this growing animosity between the Samaritans and the Jews. And so here Jesus is, it says he had to go, he chose to go. Through this area of Samaria, he chooses to speak to this Samaritan woman. And, and uh, uh, even though, because he cared about the lost, because he cared to go beyond uh, just reaching the Jews, he wanted to reach the world as the heart of God. Well, Jesus answers her in John chapter 4 and verse 10. And it says, uh, if you knew the gift of God, and who it is that says to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. There's two phrases I want to encourage you to underline, highlight, or write in your notes. The gift of God, if you knew the gift of God and if you knew who it is. Those two things, the gift of God. I mean, and he talks about this gift of God. The gift of God is the salvation that he offers. And he goes on and talks about that specifically, that this living water is not the water of the well of Jacob. It's this water that, that comes from him. He says, the water I will give him will become in him a spring 
of water welling up to eternal life. And so he goes right into eternal matters with this woman. He's talking about, she's talking about water. She's talking about a well. And he gets into eternal matters. He says, it's a gift of God. Salvation, it reminds me of Ephesians 2, 8, 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith and not, not of yourselves. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works, lest anyone should boast. And so you look at that and you think that's what he's ta- telling her. That this living water is him. He is the living water. And then he tells her to, to go find her husband and go talk to her husband. And she says, uh, uh, says uh, you know, that whole conversation, well, I've had many husbands. And he says, yeah, the one you're living with is not your husband. And she goes, wow, you must be a prophet. She's starting to get a little bit of a clue that he's more than just a Jewish fellow that showed up with the thirst. He's a guy that's a prophet of God at the very least who's talking about her eternal salvation. And then he says, our fathers worshiped on this mountain. This is what the woman asked him. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say Jerusalem is the place people ought to worship. I mean, because the Samaritans are saying, hey, we're tracing our lineage back to Moses. Moses said to come here. And that's why we built our temple here. You waited later till Solomon, and Solomon built his temple in Jerusalem. And so you're saying it's Jerusalem with Solomon. We're saying it's here with Moses. Which one are you going to say? And Jesus says in verse 22, you worship what you do not know. And I think, whoa, how rude is that? Why would he say that? Why would he jump on that? He is being honest with her. He's saying, you're involved and your heritage is one of syncretism and, and, and you don't understand what you're involved in. In fact, even in your own life doesn't line up with what you say you believe. And I was thinking about how in our world, so many times our lifestyle doesn't measure up to what we believe and we leave this, live this hypocritical lifestyle and we begin to feel bad about it and we feel bad about the sin that we've committed and the sins that are a part of our lives. And, and I think here she was dealing with that same thing. And what does Jesus focus on? It's amazing to me that he doesn't focus on, yeah, he brings up her lifestyle just to, I think, by way of conviction for her to begin to to realize who he really is, part of the proof of who he is. But his goal is salvation. He says, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from the Jews. So he's still talking about salvation. He was talking about eternal life when he talked about the water. He was talking about the gift of God. And I was thinking about how God gives us freely of his salvation. His mercies are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. I was thinking about how God gives us salvation. He gives salvation away. He doesn't make us work for it. And here Jesus is beginning to offer her eternal salvation he's offering it in terms of drink from this well he's offering it by showing and proving who he is and then he says but an hour is coming and now here when true worshipers will worship the father in spirit and truth for the Father is seeking such people. He's seeking those kind of people out. He's looking for those kind of people. He's seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit and those who worship him must worship and in spirit and truth. And I started thinking about that this week. What does that mean? What does it mean, this idea of spirit and truth? 
I was reading uh, uh, different quotes by uh, people that were talking about this idea of spirit and truth. John Piper, he says, he sums it up by saying, strong affections for God rooted in truth. And I thought, so he's saying spirit is our spirit and it's strong affections, it's emotions. And I began to go back and look at this phrase, spirit and truth. And, and we don't know from, there's no capitalization in Greek so that we know, oh, he's talking about the Holy Spirit here, just in spirit and truth. And so I began to ask the question, whose spirit and whose truth? Is it my spirit and my truth? Well, it shouldn't be my truth because then I'm involved in relativism and, and then I'm involved in my own truth and, and saying, well, my truth is this and your truth is that. And, and I thought, I don't think that's, that's not conti- uh, that's consistent with what Scripture talks about in terms of truth. And we'll see that in a minute in a few other verses. And so is it my spirit and God's truth? That would be along the lines of John Piper because he's saying it's, it's this idea of strong affections for God rooted in truth, talking about God's truth. Or is it God's spirit and God's truth? I think it's the last. I think it's God's spirit and God's truth that has, is in mind here. And you'll see why as we, we take and we wrestle with these things. Because I, I, I do think that uh, we're supposed to worship, the God, uh, worship God with our whole heart and soul and mind and strength, right? We're supposed to love him with, with every aspect of our being. So mind and emotions, heart Soul, mind, strength. Because there are some that would say, oh, well, it's just my, my emotions and my mind. I worship God with my emotions and my mind. Well, that's true in terms of what God says in Matthew 22. But what about here? Is that what his focus is? Is that our focus? I know that I, I, I have to worship him. And sometimes I don't feel very emotional Sometimes I don't feel excited about worship, and yet I still do it. I still worship him, and so is, my, is, is it wrong if my emotions are not a part of that? And, and so I, I begin to wrestle with those issues. I do know that in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, it says, Do you not know that your, temple is, your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit who is in you, whom you have from God, and that you are not your own? For you've been bought with a price, therefore glorify God with your body. And, and so I was thinking, my, my body is a temple of the Spirit of God. And so my spirit resonating with his spirit. And so it's really both. It's my emotions and my mind resonating with his spirit and allowing his spirit to work in and through me because he lives inside me. When I accepted Jesus as my Savior, the Spirit of God came in at that moment. I know that from Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians 1, 13 and 14 says, having believed you are sealed in him with the spirit of promise. And so I hear the gospel, I believe, I get the spirit immediately. I don't have to wait for a further revelation of the spirit or further giving of the spirit. I have it immediately. But the thing that I need to understand is, is that when I get the spirit of God, I need to be filled with the spirit. And that's what Paul says in Ephesians chapter five and verses 18 and following. He says, be filled with the spirit. And then he says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to, your, to the Lord with your heart. 
giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So when the Spirit of God is in me and I am allowing the Spirit to fill me. Now what does that mean to be filled with the Spirit? Right before that phrase, be filled with the Spirit in this verse, he says, don't get drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. He takes the Un, the known and, and then he shows us the unknown filled with the spirit the known drunkenness we know what that is we know that when a person is drunk they are controlled by they are filled by alcohol not literally filled up but they are under the control of under the influence of and so it means being filled with the spirit means under the control of under the influence of and that means I submit myself to the spirit of God I listen to him I'm aware of him I'm not just walking in a room and singing a few songs and listening to a message and then walking out I walk into the room with and and I I'm very aware of the presence of God We sang about that aware of the presence of the Holy Spirit in my life that he is here, that he is working in me, that he is living inside of me, and that I am not just here by myself. I am here, and my life is being changed because the Spirit of God is beginning to work on me. He convicts me of sin, righteousness, and judgment. He works inside of me and causes me to, to want to, to have my heart move toward the Lord. And so what my first step every time I worship should just be to stop and say, Lord, let your spirit move in me. Let it work in me. We, we invited him in. That last song, we were inviting him in to do everything. Like that first song that we sang, we want God to work. And so we ask him to do so. Don't just come in with, a, with your heart coming in from the day, coming in from whatever it is that you've been doing. Take a moment and say, stop. God, work inside of me. Touch me. Line my thoughts with your thoughts. Line my heart with your heart. The interesting thing is, is that it said, be filled with the Spirit and then addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. I thought, one another? I thought it meant addressing the Lord. Well, he says the Lord down here further, making melody to the Lord. But it's one another and it's the Lord. It's exactly like what we talked about in our, our illustration is this idea that I'm filled with the Spirit and that I'm making melody to one another and to the Lord. I'm singing with psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs. In other words, every kind and style of music, the hymns that they're talking about here, is not the 1500s, that was 1500 years later when that style became current. It was something different that we don't know. But he's just saying different types, different styles of music. Worship the Lord. But it's a part of the belonging aspect as well. That we belong to one another. That we're singing not only to the Lord. We're singing to one another. And I miss that. I miss that right now with you guys not being in this building. In this facility with, with me together. Uh, uh, the few of us here singing together. It was such great worship. And yet it would have been so much more to hear your voices as well. Because we belong to one another. God wants us to be with one another. Well... We worship in spirit, but we also worship in truth. And I think that's one of the things that, that when I heard that statement by that government leader made me realize we don't always worship in truth. Notice what Jesus said when he first talked to the Samaritan woman. He said, if you knew the gift of God and who it is. And I thought, wow, I don't think we know who it is. I don't think we know who Jesus is. In our limited minds, anytime we say something like, well, I don't know why I should pray because, uh, uh, or thank God because uh, I did all the work, 
makes me realize I don't understand who God is. And I began to ask myself the question, maybe I didn't say that statement, but what are some other things that I'm saying that are not true about God? A.W. Tozer, in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, said, what comes to mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. So what comes to mind when you think about God? Is it that he's from everlasting to everlasting? Is he the God of mercies and the God of grace? Or are you mad at him because of something that's happened in your life? Or somebody has done something to you that's a believer or a leader in the church and so you're mad at God? And so you find yourself and I think, if I'm mad at God, the problem is not God. He's not done anything wrong. He's perfect. He's never done anything wrong. He doesn't have any weakness. I have weaknesses. I have strengths and weaknesses. He has no weakness. I have limited strengths. He has unlimited strengths. He's unlimited in his mercy, unlimited in his grace, unlimited in everything that he is. And I think, whoa, I don't understand. And my thoughts are not his thoughts and my ways are not his ways. And I pray, Lord, help me. Help me to understand your ways. Help me to understand who you are. And through this process, he helped the Samaritan woman understand he's a prophet. And then later helped her, her to understand. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, who is the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. One of the few times that he just comes right out and says it, I'm him. I'm the one. It's me. It's the Messiah standing before you. And I was like, oh my goodness. What a precious moment. How I wish that I could have a question and answer time there. How I wish I could have been the Samaritan woman and ask him a few questions. But I would imagine that I would be so stunned that I would just be sitting there with my mouth open at that statement. Here's the Messiah standing in front of me the one who gives living water, the one who gives the gift of God, which is salvation, which is eternal life, and all I need to do is drink of him. And I think, wow, I am so glad that somebody shared the gospel with me when I was in college and helped me to understand, drink of Christ and you'll have eternal life. Drink of Jesus. It's not just being knowing about God. It's not just knowing all sorts of information about him. It's not knowing even the, the Bible and going to Bible school or seminary. It's it's all about what he has done for me. He's done it all. And I simply receive. I simply receive of what he has given and what he's provided because it's a gift. And you don't earn a gift. It's just given. And you just simply receive. But as many as received him, to them gave you the right to become children of God. And so I realized in college I had never done that. I'd never taken that step of receiving Christ. And I encourage you, if you haven't taken that step, please... Receive Christ as your Savior. Do that today. Just simply talk to him today sometime and just say, Lord Jesus, I know that you love me and that you give salvation as a free gift and I want eternal life, the eternal life that you've promised the Samaritan woman, the eternal life that you promised to anyone who will believe. But I also think in terms of my own worship of God, I need to get that right. If I want to worship in spirit and truth, and God's seeking for that in his worship, and he is spirit, he is everywhere, he is right here, he is right where you are, he is, he is everywhere. We have a God who loves us deeply. We have a God whose mercies are new every morning, great is your faithfulness. 
We have a God who gifts salvation. We have a God who has compassion. He's the God of all compassion. He's the Lord of glory. And he loves you and he loves me. And, and so when we think about this idea of worshiping and in spirit and truth, I've got to ask the question, what am I going to do about it? What am I going to change? And the first thing I need to change is I understand who he is. And I make it a lifelong pursuit to change my thoughts about him because sometimes my thoughts are not worthy of him. My thoughts are, 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 are too mundane. They don't understand who he really is. I need to worship by his spirit, not just in my own spirit. Not just an emotive event. I know that I've had people tell me, although I went to this one concert and it was an a, a orchestra concert or it was a, a, a rock concert, and they say, man, it was such a worshipful experience. And I'm like, no, you just had an emotional experience. Worship is when the object of your worship is the God of gods, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, who lives, loves you and who died for you and who is the living God and our living hope. And so let's be those who worship in spirit and truth. Let's be those who change our perspective of who he is. Let's understand that he's the God of light. He's the God of love. He is, is everything that we need. And when we come into this world and we're thinking about all the things that we do and all the things that we accomplish, we're accomplishing nothing in comparison to what he has done. And he is so much more powerful than we could ever imagine. And he loves us. He's so deserving of our love. And he seeks it. He wants it. He desires us to have that relationship with him. Respond to him. Are you angry at him? He's had people angry at him for generations. Come to him. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden. I will give you rest, Jesus said. Come to God. He desires your love. He desires relationship with you. He desires you to come in spirit and in truth. His spirit and his truth with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind and all your strength. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you for who you are. We thank you that you are the God of truth. We thank you that Jesus is the one who is the living word. He is the one that we come to for truth. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. But we also know that the Spirit is called the Spirit of truth, and he will guide us in all the truth. And so, Lord, I pray that we would respond to the Spirit of truth. And, Lord, I pray that we'd respond to your word Jesus says, sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. The living word, the written word, you've covered it all. And you want us to worship you by your spirit, by your word, by the living Christ, by the spirit of God. Lord, I pray that we would be those who respond to you and that we would worship you and truly in spirit and in truth. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.